The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke, chapter 16. We'll look this morning to verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord for us today. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that the man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We have made our way from chapter 15 over to chapter 16. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of like uh, at the end of chapter 15, it's kind of like saying goodbye to friends that have visited for a while that you're sad to see go. The, uh, maybe you're not sad to see it go, but I was sad to see chapter 15 go. The parable of the prodigal son was such, a, um, uh, such an enriching text for me to study. I hope it was for you. But as we make our way into chapter 16, the Lord Jesus, we are still following And we are still following his ministry. We are still following the things that he taught in the way that Luke has given them to us. 
But there's a stark change that takes place at chapter 16. There's a change that takes place in both the audience and the theme. So Jesus turns his attention from one group of people to another, and he stops talking about what he was talking about, and he starts talking about something altogether different. He had been in chapter 15 talking primarily to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the theme of everything that he was trying to teach in that chapter and in that moment was God's joy, God's remarkable joy, his great joy at the salvation of lost sinners. And so he told them a story about a lost coin that was found in a celebration that took place. And he told them a story about a lost sheep that was found in a celebration that took place. And then he capped it all off with a story of a, a father and two sons who both were lost, one of whom was found, and a celebration took place. It was a reminder to us of how really bad sin is, and it was a reminder to us of what repentance looks like, and it was a, a clear view to us of the remarkable, unfathomable grace of God extended to those who run far away and return. But now in chapter 16, the attention changes. If we were watching a movie, it would be the camera angle would shift to a different group. We're told at the very beginning of verse 1 that Jesus had something now to say to his disciples. His message in chapter 16 is to those who are following him, to his disciples. The chapter begins and it ends with parables, and there's a little text in between. Both of the parables, the one that we'll look at this morning and the one that ends chapter 16, both of them deal with the opportunities and the dangers associated with money and wealth. Jesus wanted his followers, his disciples, to have a, a very clear view of how they ought to approach navigating life in regards to worldly wealth. He wants them to see that the wealth that we accumulate in life that is entrusted to us, how it can be used to glorify him and how it can be used to be a blessing to them. He also wants them to, uh, to, to see some warnings. He wants them to realize that if they're not careful with how they manage the wealth that they're entrusted with, there are dangers in store. Wealth can, in a very real way, become unknowingly their functional God, the thing that they worship in God's place. It also has the potential to shipwreck their soul, to lock them out of eternal life, if you will. The Bible, in fact, has a lot to say about money and possessions. It talks about the issue quite frequently. It has a whole lot to say to God's people about how we ought to think about money and wealth and how we ought to uh, navigate with money and wealth. It gives us some things that we are commended to do with the things that God entrusts to us. It reminds us that God is the owner of everything and everything that we have is really just entrusted to us from him, whether it's a little or it's a lot. Either way, it's not ours, it's his. He gives it to us and he calls us to be good and faithful stewards of whatever amount he gives to us. Whatever money you have, whatever possessions you have, they're a blessing from the Lord. They've been entrusted to you, to your care, to your stewardship, to use in ways that would glorify and honor him and reflect the salvation that's taken place in your heart. 
the Bible makes a good connection, in fact, between our salvation and the way we manage our money and wealth. Jesus said on a different occasion, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he makes clear that on a couple of fronts, number one, you can't buy salvation. No amount of money can purchase your way into God's favor or into the kingdom of God. But the Bible makes abundantly clear that when a person is redeemed, when they are saved, when they submit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it transforms the whole person. Everything about them changes, particularly the things that they love and their affections. And it certainly should have an effect on the way that a man or a woman manages his or her money and possessions. A person who claims to know Jesus, but looks just like the world, James tells us, is deceived and is living a lie. So there should be a distinction between the way believers manage their wealth and unbelievers manage their wealth. It should not be the same. The goals should be quite different. And the way they go about achieving those goals should be different as well. The parable that we find here at the beginning of chapter 16 gives us a first glimpse into this issue. Now, I don't know how much you how familiar you are with this particular parable, but if you've read much about it, it's it's fairly notorious for being difficult to interpret. If you were to read a number of commentators, you would see a number of different sort of understandings of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. There's sort of a wide uh, a range of of thoughts on the point that Jesus is trying to make. But although on the surface it, it takes a little work to get to the bottom of the story, it seems to me that the point is rather straightforward and pretty clear. And I think you'll see it as we work through the parable. But first, we need to understand the story. We need to understand the parable. And so I just want to walk you through it sort of verse by verse to get an understanding of what's going on because I don't think it's necessarily abundantly clear right on the surface. So look with me, would you, if you would, at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there's a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So here at the beginning, we, we're, Jesus sets up the story like he frequently does. And he introduces us to his, the main characters in the story. And in this story, there are two main characters. There is a rich man, and then there's whom? Well, there's a manager. He's called a manager here, right? A rich man and a manager. Now, as the story unfolds, we see that this is a rich man who's very rich. He has significant assets. He has enough assets that he can't manage it on his own. He has to hire a manager to help him manage at least a significant portion of what he has. So he hires a steward or a business manager to help him. And that's the other character in the story, the manager. He, he manages the business affairs of the rich man. He's a steward of this rich man's possessions. He... he Likely the scenario here is that you've got a rich man who owns large pieces of property and he works those properties and farms them for a profit. And this guy is a, a manager who's at least responsible for a portion of this guy's estate and his business dealings. This man had to have been someone the rich man trusted implicitly. 
He was certainly someone that he had expected to act with integrity in regard to his possessions, right? Imagine yourself owning a business. Some of you have owned a business or do own a business. You don't put somebody in charge of your, of your finances that you don't trust, do you? You don't put somebody in charge of your running your business that you question their ethics or their integrity or their character, do you? Not normally. Not normally. So we have here a manager and a business manager. Uh, I mean, a, a rich man and a business manager. And it's, it's implied that he trusts this man implicitly with his possessions and with the operation of his business. The problem is we see pretty clearly and pretty quickly that this is not a man who ought to have been trusted. He's not a good manager. He's been cooking the books, if you will. We're simply told he was wasting his master's possessions. Wasting his master's possessions. The language there is reminiscent of the, the first uh, son in the, the prodigal son sort of parable who got his inheritance and went off to a far country and, and wasted all the possessions. He wasted possessions that were given to him that he didn't earn, that didn't belong to him initially, squandering that wealth. That's the same language that's here with this manager of the rich man's possessions. He's squandering, wasting somebody else's wealth. Now, we're not told the details of exactly how he did it. At the very least, it's clear that he's been incompetent in managing the rich man's possessions. Probably more likely, he's been intentionally deceptive and corrupt and fraudulent. Quite likely, he's been using the rich man's assets to enrich himself. And that's a story that's played out a thousand times in human history, a million times in human history, right? Someone who's entrusted with the care of somebody else's resources, who fraudulently squanders them and uses them to enrich themselves. If you paid attention to the news this week, you probably saw a news story, I think it was out of the state of Oklahoma, where a woman in her 70s was arrested, and she was charged with squandering somewhere in the neighborhood of $600,000 from her church over a period of years. The church had entrusted her with the care of some of the finances. And lo and behold, over the years, maybe even decades, she'd been funneling off resources into her own account for lavish vacations and gambling, we're told. That story's played out a thousand, hundreds of thousands of times in human history, hasn't it? So it's very familiar with us. It would have been a very familiar scenario to Jesus' original audience. But as is quite frequently the case, the, what's secret becomes exposed. And in this particular story, there's a whistleblower who comes forward and exposes the manager. This whistleblower goes to the rich man and he lets him know there's something going on behind your back that you don't know. This guy that you think you can trust, he can't be trusted. He's ripping you off. Now you'll notice in the story that the truth of the accusations is never in dispute. Nowhere along the way as Jesus tells the story does the, the manager ever dispute the claim or the charge, or the accusation. He doesn't plead his innocence. He doesn't even argue against the charge. It seems that he knows he's guilty, and he's been exposed. All the accusations are true. The gig is up. 
or as we might say today, he's busted. He's busted. So what happens? Verse 2, the rich man called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Well, that's swift and, and clear action on the part of the rich man. He calls the guy to himself, what in the world have you been doing? What have you been doing? Provide an account for what you've been up to. How you've managed my resources. And you'll notice that he fires him on the spot, doesn't he? He makes very clear to him, you cannot be my manager anymore. You are no longer going to be employed in this job. Now, it seems, though, that he's given him time to sort of close out the books, time to sort of tie up loose ends, time to go pack up his office, time to clear up some things before he leaves the premises. He's been caught red-handed. He has no defense. And so now panic mode commences. And we get a sort, of, uh, a sort of a glimpse to the internal dialogue that goes on in this man now who's been exposed for his, for his crime. And we're told that he said to himself, Self? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? My master's taken management away from me. Not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I mean, you can see what's going on in his head, right? He realizes that his job has come to an end and his crime has been exposed. He is now very short, in a very short amount of time, going to be unemployed and also likely unemployable, at least in the same field. And so now he's figuring out, how am I going to survive? How am I going to eat? How am I going to pay my bills? I am getting ready to lose everything. And he's running through his head, right? He's reminding himself. He's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's saying, Self, you ain't made to work outside. You're a white-collar worker, not a blue-collar worker. He's got soft hands like a businessman. He doesn't have the calloused hands of a laborer. He's been making a living with his brain, not his back. So he can't just run outside and jump on a crew and start digging ditches. That's not going to be an option for this guy. And we see in his internal dialogue, too, that he's too proud and he's too privileged to become a beggar, right? I mean, someone with his status would have been very well known. He was a high-ranking official, the highest-ranking official, likely, in the household of a very rich man that everybody would have known. He's been operating at the highest level of executive leadership, you could say it that way. And there's no way that he could just go out on the street and start begging. Everybody knows him, and everybody's going to know what he's done. So his mind is racing. He's trying to come up with a plan. What do you do if you're in that spot? What do you do? Can you identify with at least what he's thinking? He's got to come up with a plan. The clock is ticking, and it's ticking, and he doesn't have much time, and he can't rely on Social Security or unemployment because there isn't any of that stuff in the first century. He's got no fallback plan. He has to figure out a way to, to survive, some way to secure food and water and shelter. And as he's running through this, all sweaty-palmed, I just made that part up, but I'm guessing that's true, the light bulb comes on. He has a eureka moment right? He says, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. 
I know what I'm going to do. A plan comes together in his mind. It's risky, but desperate times require sometimes desperate measures, right? And it's a real doozy of a plan that this guy comes up with. In fact, you have to admit, it's pretty ingenious what he devises. Here's what we're told. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? He says, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of weed. And he says, take your bill and write 80. Now that's a good plan, isn't it? Let's think about what this guy's doing. He formulates and he executes his plan before he gets completely fired and kicked off the property. He quickly summons everybody who owes his master, the rich man, money, or who owes them sort of payment on a contract, if you will. Now, Jesus gives us the details of two specific encounters, but the indication is that he does the same thing with all of the rich man's debtors. He calls them in. He apparently still has the ability to act in his sort of official capacity. His termination hasn't sort of gone into full effect. He hasn't turned in his keys yet. He hasn't turned in the corporate credit card quite yet. He hasn't given his ID badge back yet or fully cleared out the office. He's got this little short window of time to do something. Well, he's supposed to be closing out the books and wrapping up his affairs, but he doesn't do that. He calls in all these people who owe the rich man money. And he goes to the first one and he says, how much do you, do you owe? He says, a hundred measures of oil. A hundred measures of oil is a lot of oil. That's a lot of oil. Somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight to nine hundred gallons of oil. We're talking about a major enterprise here. The yield of about 150 olive trees. The value of which would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three years wages for an average worker. So a significant amount of money, a significant crop. And so he says to this guy, all right, you owe him a hundred measures of oil. Boy, have I got a deal for you. It is your lucky day. My master, that rich guy, he's, he's a generous man. And I come representing him to you today, and, and we've got a special sale just this week. Half price sale. 50% off. I've negotiated a, a major discount just for you. You can almost hear the salesman in his voice, right? He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit down, we're going to take out the contract, and we're going to write off half of your debt right here, right now. 50 measures of oil, that's all you owe. Now, you can only imagine the surprise and the gratitude on that debtor's face, right? I mean, anybody walks up to you and says, hey, how much do you owe? I'm going to write off 50% of it right now. That's enough to make your day, right? It's like, honey, let's go get a steak. Our debt's cut in half. So that's what he does. He goes to the second one, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Gives him the same story. He pulls out his contract and he says, sit down. I want that hundred measures of wheat, 80. Reduces by 20% right there. I'm sure that guy was elated too. The wheat was extremely valuable. And one after another, he does this with each and every one of the people who owed the rich man payment. And he goes through them all. 
Do you see what he's doing? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Well, the what is pretty clear. He's further defrauding the rich man. Is that clear? He's further defrauding the guy. He's already been fired, so what does he have to lose, right? Might as well go out with a bang. And he does. He's changing the terms of all the contracts. The rich man is not going to be able to go back and undo all this. It's going to, to, to do that would destroy his reputation for generosity that's now been given. And these were legal contracts executed by his official steward. So he's further defrauding his boss. But that's not the important thing. The second thing is what is important. He's making a lot of friends, isn't he? He's making a lot of friends. So why does he do that? Well, there's this whole principle of reciprocity. We've talked about this a couple of times as we've walked through Luke's gospel in the first century, this cultural idea of reciprocity. This, it was a very, very big deal. It's not so much a deal in our culture, so it's a little foreign to our minds. But the, the idea is, if you do a favor for somebody, that person for whom you do a favor is ob- obligated to return that favor to you. It wasn't just customary, it was a cultural obligation. So in writing off the debts of all these people to the rich man, he was in a real sense indebting the people to him. They would now owe him big time. He's been able to negotiate a significant reduction in their debt, and all these people that he does that for now are obligated to return the favor. And particularly because he has written off a very significant sum of money in all of these cases, you can imagine that the obligation to repay the favor was significant as well. So he knows about the fact that he's about to become unemployed and unemployable. So he's using the rich man's money to make a lot of friends for himself. Because he knows, in very short order, he's going to have nothing. And he's going to need people who owe him in order to be able to make his ends meet. He's making friends who are going to owe him and be obligated to do him a solid favor. Charles Swindoll said this, he's executing the first rule of politics. Always be generous with other people's money. That's a good observation, right? He's being very generous with somebody else's money in order to make friends who are going to be able to help him out when he's unemployed very shortly. He's going to be able to get all he needs from all these people whose debts he's written off. You've got to admit, that's a pretty pretty sharp scheme to come up with like that, isn't it? I mean, he's undercutting the bottom line of the rich man, and he's securing all the resources he's going to need when he's fired. I mean, it's completely unethical, but it's brilliant. The question we're left with, though, is how's the rich man going to respond to all this? What's he going to do? You'd expect that he's going to be livid. You'd expect that he's going to lose his mind when he realizes that this guy who's already ripped him off has now, in short order, ripped him off even further in very significant ways. Maybe he was livid. We don't know. You'd expect him to want to wring that guy's neck, throw him in a well, or do something. But here's where Jesus' story takes a very surprising turn. Something no one would have expected. 
Jesus says the master stuck a sword in the head of the guy, right? It doesn't say that. What does it say that he did? Read it with me. He commended the dishonest manager. What in the world? Why is Jesus telling us a story about a guy who is unethical and dishonest in his business dealings, and he rips off this guy, not once, not twice, but in a bunch of different ways in order to pad his own pocket, in order to sort of unscrupulously make ends meet for himself. Why would he tell us that that kind of thing is commended? How are we to understand this master's response? It creates all kinds of problems for us as we're trying to interpret this. It seems like at the surface that Jesus is commending unethical, dishonest business dealings, and that doesn't make any sense. The key for us, though, is to understand and to look closely at exactly what it is that the master commends him for. Did you catch that? What does the master commend him for? For his shrewdness. He doesn't commend him for his dishonesty. He doesn't commend him for his lack of business ethics. He certainly doesn't commend him for the way he's been ripping somebody off for more money. But what he does commend him for is his shrewdness. That word shrewd means simply resourceful, acting wisely with insight, being crafty, if you will. It's an interesting picture. It's a picture of a rich man who... who commends this guy at the end, even though he's surely not happy about what happened, he has to at least step back and say, as much as I hate what you did for me, as much as I hate what you did, and as wrong as it is, you really got me on that one. You really got me. Credit where credit's due. Or as the kids would say, game recognizes game, right? It was unethical, and it was unscrupulous. It cost me a fortune. But I have to admit... That was shrewd. That was pretty ingenious. I didn't see that coming. And then Jesus says this. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in business dealings or in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Who are the sons of the world? Well, this this. This uh, manager is an example of sons of the world, but it's the way Jesus is using it. It's just a phrase to describe people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, people who are not faithful to God, people who are not living for the glory of God and the things of the Lord, people who are not concerned about their ethics and morals and spiritual values, people who are just living for the world and living for themselves and doing what most people in the world do. Those are sons of the world, of which this unscrupulous manager is a clear example. And he's just making the point that unbelievers, not concerned about pleasing God, not concerned about eternal matters, they operate with a focus and a skill and a determination to gain wealth. They build market strategies and they build business plans and they build advertising campaigns all geared toward accumulating and gaining wealth. They get together and they come up with all kinds of strategies to sell their widgets, to devise investment plans, to anticipate the stock market, to beat their competitors to the punch. There's a shrewdness that comes with business dealings in the world. And you understand that. Most of you work somewhere in a business, in some industry, and you see every day how shrewd business dealings are. 
You see how people who live in the world operate with a, a focus and a determination and a resourcefulness to go after every last penny that they can get. And Jesus contrasts that reality with the sons of the light. This is God's people. And the point he's making is unbelievers who are pursuing wealth for themselves operate with a shrewdness, with a, with a resourcefulness, with a focus, with a determination to squeeze everything they can out of the world. Whereas God's people, the sons of the light, are often naive, lazy, unskilled, uncommitted to their mission. They don't approach the mission to which God has called them with nearly the same kind of focus or skill or determination or perseverance. Lost people work hard to advance their worldly mission, but God's people often act like the mission is going to just get done automatically by someone else, somewhere else. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The zeal and pertinacity of men of business encompassing the sea and land to get earthly treasures may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers about treasures in heaven. The words of our Lord are indeed weighty and solemn. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. It's a pretty piercing point that he makes in a very unique way, isn't it? How would our lives, how would our church, how would our city be different if we spend as much time planning and strategizing and working and persevering in order to make mature, and multiply disciples for Jesus as we do to pursue careers and things of the world? That's the question that's being posed. If we pursued that with the same kind of gusto that lost people pursue earning money and wealth, how would things be different? And just as a Rich man is commending the manager on his shrewdness. Jesus is pointing out the lack of shrewdness on the part of his people toward the mission that he's called them. He's not saying you ought to be unscrupulous in your pursuit of my mission. He's not saying you ought to be dishonest and unethical, but he is saying that you ought to be resourceful. There is something to be learned from the world's resourcefulness and craftiness and perseverance and the effort that's put at the mission that they have. And remember, he's talking to his disciples, to his followers. And he's wanting to motivate them. And really, in the remainder of this text, he lays out really three principles that are sort of an application of that story. And I'm, they're, they're quite obvious, so I'm going to give them to you sort of quickly here. Um, and trust that the Spirit of God is going to apply it directly to your own life and your own heart as is appropriate. Three quick principles of application that he gives us in 9 through 13. The first is simply this. Invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. 
I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now don't get tripped up by the word unrighteous wealth here. Jesus doesn't mean ill-gained wealth. He doesn't mean unethically gained wealth. He's just using that phrase there sort of as a, as a, uh, a label to describe the wealth that comes from the world. Just the wealth that we earn by doing business in the world. The kind of money and things that we gain by doing things here. The stuff that we can't carry with us when we're gone part of the unrighteous world in which we live. It's created here. It doesn't go with us into eternity. It's just earthly wealth or worldly wealth. Just call it that. And he's contrasting that with heavenly wealth. It's reminiscent of what he says in Matthew 6 where he says, verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven, right? As opposed to that. The contrast is between treasures on earth and treasures on heaven. It's the same contrast here. And he's saying, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it falls or fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Just like that manager in the parable used his master's wealth to make friends for himself for the future so that when he was going to be unemployed and penniless, those people would come alongside and supply his needs. He's saying to his followers, listen, You, in the same way, are to leverage the world's wealth to make friends. But not the kind of friends who can do you a favor here. Not that kind of friend. Not the kind of friend that can repay you with favors on earth, but the kind of friend who's going to be waiting to receive you in eternity. Who are these friends that he's talking about? Who are these friends that we can make who welcome us into eternity? who receive us into eternal dwellings. Well, there could be a lot of different people. It's those people who have been blessed spiritually by our giving. Those people who, who, who you've come alongside of, who were in need, and the Spirit of God put it on your heart to come alongside them, and in the name of Jesus Christ, to be His hands and feet, to pay the bill, to help them, to give them the money they need to fix their vehicle to help them with whatever it is that they need that you've resourced. That's making friends for eternity. It's people whose lives are spiritually blessed by our giving and by our sacrifice. It's lost people who are saved by our giving. It's it's Ukrainian refugees who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in the house of joy because you've given money some of your wealth to be able to provide a place for them to come and run away from war and hear the gospel of Jesus. It's believers who are, whose lives are spiritually impacted through our generosity. That's what it looks like to lay up treasure in heaven, to make friends, eternal friends, by means of unrighteous wealth. He's talking about, and he's telling believers, use the things that God has entrusted you with to lay up eternal treasure, to have a spiritual impact in people's lives that goes well beyond this world. So that when you get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of friends there that welcome you, who are going to see you coming and say, there's the lady who helped me. There's that man who gave when I didn't have anything. There's that person who spent their money to get on an airplane 
to fly to my country, to come to my village, to tell me the gospel of Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Invest in eternity. How do you do that? I think the Bible is clear that the first way that we do that is through local church giving. The place where God has called us to connect is the local church and to be a part of the mission of the local church. And as the local church goes on mission for the Lord, we take the gospel into our city and ultimately around the world. And in order to do that, we have to have resources to do that. And the way God resources that work is through the people of God who are a part of the church. And everybody who is impacted by the ministry of this church is in a sense friends of yours who've been impacted by your generosity. People whose spiritual lives are better because of you. Because of your contribution to the work of God here. You do it by missions giving, by giving to organizations who are taking the gospel and serving people in need and being the hands and feet of Christ around the world. You do it by coming alongside someone in secret that nobody else knows and helping them with the need that they have simply because you love Christ and you want to be a blessing. You do that by investing in other people's spiritual development. I have met some friends a number of years ago when I was in California, an elderly couple now. The man is, is very wealthy, but if you met him, you would never know he had anything. He didn't flaunt his wealth in the slightest. He didn't talk about it at all. But I'm told by mutual friends that there are numerous missionaries around the world that are supported by this elderly couple whose work of of ministry is underwritten solely by this sweet couple. People in various places in the world coming to know Jesus Christ and hearing the gospel simply because an elderly couple who have some unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth, have invested it in them and allowed them to go do the work that God called them to do. There are numerous students who've graduated seminary and graduated Bible college, students who couldn't afford to do either one of those, but were able to go because this couple subsidized them and gave them the opportunity to go get trained in the Bible and are now pastors of churches all over the country and around the world. There are a number of churches that have been blessed by that couple who found out the church had a need, and they quietly wrote a check and sent it with no fanfare. It's impossible to imagine the number of people who have been spiritually, eternally impacted by that elderly couple's generosity. There's going to be a bunch of people in heaven, we're going to welcome those sweet people home. Because they've used the unrighteous wealth of the world as a means to make friends for eternity. That's the message. Invest in eternity. The world inundates us with a whole different message, does it? It says, accumulate more stuff for yourself. Take more lavish vacations. Buy bigger houses. Buy bigger cars. Accumulate all the toys you can. Go into debt if you need to. Impress your neighbors. Impress your friends. Just keep buying. Keep consuming. Keep spending. Jesus says, invest in eternity. And then he goes on to say, Be faithful the way you have. One who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in very little 
is also dishonest in much. That's a pretty easy sort of understanding, isn't it? People who are faithful with the little bit that they have would also be faithful if they had more. And people who are dishonest with the little that they have would also be dishonest if they were given more. The issue isn't how much a person has. The issue is a matter of spiritual integrity and character. That's the point, isn't it? People who are dishonest and selfish and lacking in generosity when they don't have very much will also be the same way if they're given a windfall. And people who are like that, people who are dishonest with their money, selfish with their money, lacking in generosity, should not expect God to entrust anything of spiritual value to them. That's what he says, right? If you can't be faithful with that which is another's, meaning your wealth, who it doesn't belong to you, who's going to give you that which is your own? Be faithful with what little you have. The issue isn't how much money do you have. The issue isn't how much wealth do you have. Across this room, everybody's in a different place in life. Everybody's had a different experience. Everybody's bank account looks different. And at the end of the day, none of that really matters. The issue isn't how much do you have. The issue is how faithful are you being with the little or a lot that you have? What's the spiritual integrity and the character behind how you navigate with your resources? Are you faithful with them? God entrusts more to those who are faithful with little. And the last thing he says here is don't let your money master you. No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You simply cannot at one and the same time, serve God and money. That doesn't need a whole lot of comment, does it? God understands that the greatest competitor for our attention, our affection, and our time is our money and our wealth. He knows that. Greatest competitors with him for our time and our attention and our affections. And those things can very quickly rule our lives, even without us recognizing it. And he puts it in blatant terms. You cannot serve those things. <clears throat> you cannot live for those things and at the same time be serving God and living for him. One of them is directing your heart and not the other. There's no middle ground. There's no way to ride that fence. Your life is being driven and directed by the things of God and you're using your wealth and resources as a means to an end to be able to accomplish the good and glorious ministry that God has called you to do and equipped you to do or your life is being driven and your heart is being captured by the money and the wealth and those things are driving you to do what you do and God is being squeezed out. One of those two things is happening, but not both. You can't be a slave both to God and to money. So what do you think? Ask yourself that question this morning. How much time do you spend thinking about, strategizing for, worrying about, planning for, accumulating money and wealth? And how much time do you spend thinking about, planning for, strategizing for, engaging in the kingdom of God and eternal things. It's a clear diagnostic of what has captured your heart. 
May God, by his spirit, show us who our master is. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the story. We thank you for the way that it tweaks us in an area that we don't like to be tweaked. For the way that it convicts us and exposes deep-rooted sin in our lives. For the way that it reminds us exactly how materialistic we are. And for how it reminds us that our faith isn't just about what we say, but it's about what we do. And there's no better way to know where we really stand with you than to look at how we manage our money. I pray by your spirit, Lord, you would help us to be faithful to you in these areas, that we would be people who love to invest in eternity, people who are faithful with whatever little you've given us, that we're finding joy in making eternal friends by blessing others spiritually through the wealth you've given us. And we pray this morning, particularly as we approach this table, Lord Jesus, that we can say with full assurance that you are the master of our hearts. That it's you we love the most. That it's you that drives our affections and our attention and the direction of our lives and not wealth. If that's not the case, Lord, draw us to repentance in these quiet moments. Help us to confess that sin and be made right with you. We're reminded here as we approach this table how tightly we hold our money and possessions in contrast to how freely you willingly laid down your entire life. Shedding your blood. Giving your body. That we might be saved. Greatest gift of all eternity. Help us remember, Lord, we pray. For your glory alone. Amen.